You're listening to Within Tolerance, a podcast for machinists by machinists. I'm your host, Dylan Jackson from Protean Machining. And this week, I'm joined <laughs> by Dan DeMajor of Kern. Welcome, Dan. Hey, thanks for having me. My pleasure. So for those who don't follow you on Instagram, who are you? What do you do? Where do they know you from? All that good stuff. So yeah, I'm uh, IGS Dan on Instagram, and I work for a company called Kern Precision. So uh, I represent Kern Microtechnic for the U.S. Uh, for the East Coast for for sales. I'm a, a salesman. Unfortunately, I have that that inglorious title. But I also represent Inolite, so diamond turning lathes built in Germany, and Six uh, C Tools, so PCD tools uh, made in Switzerland. Awesome. Okay, I, I didn't realize that you sold Six C as well. I know that uh, Tom from Inspiration Metalworks had used some of those and. I was curious where to even buy those if I ever needed them. So that's now, great. now you know. Just yeah. shoot me a DM and I can hook you up. Awesome. Well, so let's get to how you got to be where you are now. Uh, what's your background in manufacturing? Sure. So uh, I guess I'll start way back. I mean, starting from like grade school, sort of like a lot of people. I guess I was, you know, hands on with like Legos and sort of you know, mechanically inclined a bit, but also really into computers and stuff like that. So just kind of a fun uh, little tidbit of information is a lot of people ask, where's the IGS come from in my my screen name? So uh, in, in high school, I was using Macromedia Flash for animation stuff. Uh, so if you, if you <laughs> feel like going on the internet and Googling uh, IGS Dan and stick figure animation, you'll find a whole bunch of stuff from like 20 years ago of uh, yeah, stick figures getting harmed in, in hilarious ways. So that's where the the IGS comes from is Image Gear Studios was my, my <laughs> studio name, which is kind of funny, but it just sort of stuck and uh, I haven't bothered changing it since. So well, I remember using Flash a bunch like I took a, you know, after school class on like how to make little video games and stuff and you know Newgrounds was super big when I was in school so exactly so you can actually still go on Newgrounds and find I don't know four or five of the four or five of my creations from back in the day which is just kind of hilarious to think about that's Um, super cool so yeah that's that's sort of how I started getting involved with sort of the computer side was you know flash animation is I don't know how you describe it exactly but it, it got me comfortable with using software that would sort of ease me into doing CAD CAM stuff, I guess. that's So that got me comfortable with that as well. I ran a website, so it was HTML programming and things like that. So that that sort of got me comfy on that side. And then as I got older, 16-ish, I sort of dropped, you know, doing animation stuff and got into working on cars. So like my first car was a Nissan 240SX, uh, 1997, so it was an S14. And uh, my father was pretty adamant that I got an automatic transmission on my first car. And oh, I, no. <laughs> I, I rebelled against him. And in my, uh, my summer vacation, vacation before senior year, I did a, a manual transmission swap on that. And uh, yeah, so I was kind of hooked on, on working on cars and stuff like that. My father actually in, in this period of time was a machinist, but he didn't really like communicate how cool machining was. <laughs> so for me, I didn't even really know anything about it. I had seen, you know, the knee mills he worked on, things like that. But at that point, they were um, just kind of lame because he'd track home some swarf stuck in his shoe and it would scratch my foot when I walked on the carpet. So it, you know, I didn't correlate that this was actually something that I'd be interested in some someday. So it was just kind of a, a funny side note. Really interesting. I actually had a kind of similar experience. So I think it was either my first job or my second job. I worked for like 
a sum total of a week at an engine machine shop. That's yeah. before I had ever touched, you know, known what machining was or anything. And I was just doing it because a friend got me the job and it was literally outside in like a painter's suit in the heat of Arizona <laughs> summers, cleaning engine blocks for him to machine. So I didn't last long, but you know, he had a, a shop full of, you know, hones and mills and all this stuff. And at the time I, I had zero interest in it. I was like, whatever, you know, I'll just do this job. And then right. looking back on it, it's like, oh man, I could have learned so much. That would have been cool. I, I know. I wish I could go back and, and just tell myself like, maybe go back to the shop with your dad and ask him, ask him questions. And, and then he'll probably like, you'll see the passion come out, but Anyway, can't can't do that now. Yeah. So, but yeah, let's see. So, yeah, that was that was high school. was was pretty into cars. I was not a very good student, and unfortunately, uh, I just didn't apply myself like uh, a lot of a lot of kids. Didn't see the benefit in really pouring in the effort, which was regrettable because I I did kind of want to go to college, but I just didn't didn't even care enough to to put that effort forth. So, I I basically uh, narrowed down my my choices to doing, you know, working on cars for a living, which at the time seemed really great because, yeah, I love to work with my hands, love working on cars. We had a, a representative from Universal Technical Institute come to our high school and do a presentation. And I was like, this is the way forward. I'm, I'm sure of it. So when I graduated, I went and took their, uh, their technical course, year-long course. For anyone who's got kids, I'm sure there's not a lot of kids looking to become mechanics listening to the podcast. If so, I would discourage going to Universal Technical Institute or uh, tell your tell your kids if they're thinking about it, just send them to a local tech school, uh, technical community college, something like that. Uh, costs way less money. They'll learn just about all of the same things and save uh, uh, a whole bunch of, of money in the long term. But otherwise, you know, working on cars, I did that for about seven years. Uh, so, yeah, factory technician for Ford, uh, Nissan and Mazda. And uh, it was a totally good living. It's it's something I certainly can't knock and respect anyone who decides to do that as as their career choice. For me, uh, after doing it for a while, I started to you know I, I got into working on cars because I loved it. It's it's was like my passion, and was you know obsessed with you know at that time I started doing autocross and I was you know obsessed with modifying my my 240 and 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 uh, yeah loved getting into the the details with that stuff, but. You know, when you start working in that as a career, you start to see the people who've been doing it for 30 years, and they are just worn down to the nub. Basically, like they have, they lost their passion a long time ago, and you know their health is is bad. They've got bad backs and bad knees, and uh, they're just tired and grumpy and disheveled all the time. <laughs> yeah. So, you know, it's like the writing was on the wall pretty much, and I I came home some days and was just like, this is gonna consume me like I can't I can't continue to do this and still say that I, I love it so it was around this like 2011 time frame that uh, my brother uh, Neil who's on Instagram as well it's at HSC pro he started working for Datron so Datron's got a, an office uh, here in southern New Hampshire and he started working for them as like an inside sales rep and uh, he started telling me about, oh, you know, this is actually pretty cool and it's machine tools, you know, something you might be interested in. And I thought, no, that's, you know, I, I know machining from what my dad did and I, surely it's not something that I'd be interested in. But eventually I got to go there for a visit and I met Chris Hopkins, who's also on Instagram. I think he's uh, at C Hopkins Max or something like that. At the time, he was like the lead applications engineer there. 
and I, I got to know him. We, we went out and uh, had a beer and a burger and got to shoot guns, and that was a great time. So I already liked <laughs> I liked Chris from the get-go. So, uh, you know, I started talking to him a little bit, and I was like, hey, you know, is this uh, this seems kind of cool. You know, is it hard to get into? And he's like, ah, you don't want to do it. He was trying to discourage it for, for whatever reason. I'll never fully understand why. But, you know, some time passed, and I worked on cars some more, and my brother kept telling me about Datron and how cool things were. And yeah, eventually they finished an expansion uh, to a second building to to build a new tech center uh, in the in the New Hampshire office. And uh, Neil said, "Yeah, come along for the open house event." So I went, and they had I don't know four or five machines running, and I saw just you know like the tour de force of of all this cool machine tool stuff, and it just I had no clue what I was looking at, just that it was like. It was like a calling. Like I, I saw that and I was like, I need to get out of what I'm doing. This this is so cool. How do I get involved? And then I really sort of doubled down on talking to Chris and bothering him and saying, hey, you know, <laughs> what what can you recommend? Like, how do I get started? Do I have to go to some school or course or, you know, what 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 do I do? I just didn't know my ass from my elbow when it, when it came to how to get started. So Chris really threw me a bone uh, in like 2000. 12, late 2012, something like that. Uh, he said, Hey, all right, you know, if you really, if you really want to get started you know, what would help is if you learn some CAD cam software, it's kind of maybe a little bit backwards to start with CAD cam instead of learning machining, but I took whatever opportunity I could get. Yeah. Uh, when it's something you it, can do at home, it's, you know, they're ex- not going to loan ex- you a day trip. <laughs> exactly. Exactly. <laughs> so he said that he had this, this copy of master cam home learning edition for I believe it was X6 or X5. I don't I don't quite remember, but he gave me that. So it had, you know, a trial license of Mastercam and uh, these tutorials that would just walk you step by step and like some some basic 2D drawing stuff and then some basic cam tool path stuff, you know, just 2D contours and 2D pocketing and uh, you know, drills and all that stuff. And so I just sort of followed that step by step and uh, and and got pretty hooked to that. So while I was practicing on that, I was sort of keeping in touch with my brother and saying, hey, do you know, are they hiring for anything or, 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 you know, is there any opportunities? And generally speaking, it was like, no. And, you know, why don't you just go call him yourself? And, you know, eventually I did. And I talked to uh, the, the service manager at the time, Chris, uh, different Chris, Chris Gordon. And uh, he said, yeah, actually, we're looking for somebody, but not in an applications role, not in a service role, but like a service administrator. And I said, yeah, fine. Let me apply. I don't care. <laughs> it was uh, a way to get in the door and, and start to get established and learn more and stuff like that. So I had to go through a pretty comprehensive interview process because they were reluctant about hiring Neil's brother. <laughs> so I, I went in for, I don't know, two or three interviews, something like that. Uh, and then, you know, eventually got got the okay and, and started there in February, uh, 2013, just like, you know, taking service calls and creating, uh, cases, service cases and following up with customers and, and things like that sort of out of my depth. But at the same time, it was not, not super difficult work. I was already sort of used to working with customers in automotive repair. So right. it was like, it was, it was actually kind of a nice fit. But I made it pretty clear, like with the amount of time I'd spend out in the tech center, you know, watching things being cut and then asking questions and, you know, fiddling around with MasterCam. And uh, eventually, you know, I, I, 
I had a friend that worked at the dealership that I, I used to work for. And he said, hey, you know, you think you could mill something for me? And I was just like, eh. yeah, maybe. <laughs> <laughs> Mike, what, what are we talking? How complicated? And all it was was a, an EGR block off plate. So that's a great he, first part. Exactly. It was like just a flange and without a hole in it, just two holes for bolts and had to match the gasket. So I, I drew it up in Mastercam and applied some rudimentary tool paths. I just posted my, my video of this the other day and it was horrifically bad in machining strategy. It was like uh, one end mill full depth of cut as slow as possible on a vacuum chuck. So it was like the first run was not successful. No surprise there. But uh, after a couple of tries, I, I managed to cut that part. And uh, I'll never forget, I was just like holding the, the pendant and jumping up and down with excitement, like, I, <laughs> I, I can actually do this, like, uh, super psyched. So that that sort of enthusiasm became sort of apparent in the company. And they, they moved me to like a half service, half applications role, which I did for about six months, six months to a year, something along those lines, and then eventually sort of transitioned into an applications role. So, you know, the, the focus sort of shifted over the, I was, you know, I was there at Daytron for about seven and a half years. And I think it, it started off mostly with just training people, you know, how to use the control, the basics, doing installations on machines, uh, but then doing some, some test cuts. So it's pretty common, you know, no matter what manufacturer you're talking to, that a customer is going to want to see a test cut to validate the equipment, make sure the tolerances are good, et cetera. So I was doing a lot of that. And then it transitioned into maybe the customer needs a turnkey solution, whether it had automation or they needed custom macro programming done. So I got very comfortable with that. And yeah, that that went on in, in that fashion for about four, four years or so until I started doing applications project management, which was basically working as sort of the the in-between between the the rest of the applications department and our sales department. Because yeah, if if the sales department just goes directly to the applications engineers, then sometimes some things would get by that shouldn't be there, parts that belong on a lathe or not a Daytron, for instance. So I was sort of the gatekeeper there and was also still doing test cuts and demonstrations and, and things like that at the same time. That went on for about two years until that brought us to roughly 2019 late 2019, something like that, where I started focusing a little bit more on the marketing side. A lot of the social media stuff that, that Daytron was putting up at the time I was contributing to, overseeing and doing things like webinars, yeah, creating video content, uh, writing blog articles, all sorts of stuff like that. So yeah, that was right before COVID in that early 2020 range. You know, it, at that point, I had known Marv for a couple of years. We had met at uh, Autodesk University 2017, I want to say. I think we met at I Autodesk was University. just about to say that, yeah, because Marv was amazing. And you know those little air quality sensors you guys were making? Yes, yep. So every time I went to the, what was it, the Forge or whatever they called it, to get one. The factory. Yeah, factory. So they would yep. they would cut off the line like three people before me and be like, nope, sorry, that's all we got. And I was like, I was so bummed. And then Marv and I were in a class or something, and he's like, Oh, well, I know Dan and I know a few guys that are doing that stuff. Let me see if I can hook you up with something. And like, I think I have the only, you know, guest of AU who has a, a 
a sensor that I have the machine top cap, but I have a 3D printed prototype outside shell because there was no, none of the machine ones left. And he like yep. happened to snake all these parts for me and it let me build it. I was like, you are the best. <laughs> but yeah, I, I think we met there. Yep. So yeah, I'd known him since actually before that because he started posting stuff on Instagram and I was like, who are you? And he was like the most remarkable uh, dude that I had met at Daytron in, in a while. And just like, I mean, there's a bunch of good guys at, at Daytron. So if, if they're listening, then I'm not trying to single out Marv, but it's just we built a, a pretty close relationship. And, uh, you know, when he left Datron to go work for Kern, it caught my attention, of course. And I had already known about Kern for a while. Datron's really interesting. And it's a weird place, I think, to start your machining career in retrospect. At, at the time, I didn't think anything of it. You know, in one perspective, it was really good because Datron's not a conventional mill by any stretch of the imagination. It's exceedingly good at, at what it's good at. And then it's can be pretty bad at a lot of other things. And uh, it just became the normal. So I, I was sort of molded around what was good Datron fits. And, and that that made it easy to, to get going. Also, you know, the majority of tooling that they're using are single flute tools, which are super forgiving for stupid amateurs like me, full, full <laughs> cut plunging my, my EGR block off plate. Right. So, so it was actually a really nice place to start. But at the same time, I, I recognized the longer I spent there and I'd go to IMTS and I'd see all the other machine tools uh, and different types of tooling and stuff. It's just like I started to to acknowledge that, you know, this wasn't uh, Datron's not the pinnacle uh, of of at least my career. I mean, for some people, it's all the machine they'll ever need. But it, I was left sort of curious about more of, of what else was out there. And it's kind of a funny story that in uh, in the sales offices at Datron, there was uh, in in somebody's booth, they had this normal sized piece of computer paper with a, a pyramid printed on it and in the middle there was datron and then on the bottom there was like tormach and then there was like haas and there was RoboDrill, and i think datron was there-ish and then above that there was like micron and hermola and at the very top of the pyramid was kern <laughs> <laughs> so i had known about kern since since then and but you know i never really dug too deep into it. I was just like, Kern, wow, they're the best. That's that's all I knew. And so it was around that that sort of 2020 time, uh, early 2020, right before COVID. Marv was like, hey, you know, next time in your Chicago, just let me know and and I'll talk to Tony, who's the president at, at KPI, Kern Precision, and I'll hook you up and you guys can, you know, you can meet up and have a chat and just, you know, whatever. So I said, yeah, that sounds great. So it was February, so like T minus one month before total COVID lockdown. And I happened to be there for an event. And uh, Tony and I met up for tacos and, and beer. And it, unbeknownst to me, it was like my my job interview for, for Kern. <laughs> <laughs> so uh, so it, was, it was funny, but it was good because it, it taught me a lot right in that instance of, you know, what, what I thought was true about Kern was maybe not true, or there's some things I didn't realize, you know, we'll, we'll get, I'll probably get into with some of the questions I have here, some of, some of the, the things that I thought were true were, were not. But yeah, after that, it was, it was cool. It sort of ended on the note of like, hey, if, you know, you're ever, if you're ever thinking about changing careers, let, let me know, and, and maybe there's something we could do. I said, okay, that's fine. So then, yeah, I went, and this is the, the last couple of visits I did were installing John Saunders uh, Neo, the, the loner Neo. Uh -huh. And then uh, the week after, I think I went to install Ed Kramer's machine, his Neo. 
And then that, that was like right on the cusp of like, you know, the FAA saying you can't fly anymore. It's not safe. Right. Because of COVID, et cetera. So I did that installation. And then it was like, after that, I, I worked from home from, from that point on. And I think like for a lot of people, uh, this was sort of like that, that trend, that phase where people were starting to consider like, you know, what, am I happy where I am? I think with COVID, a lot of people just started questioning, like, maybe this is the time to, to mix things up a little bit. Yeah. You slow and, down enough that you can kind of analyze things. Yeah, exactly. So it was, you know, I did the work from home thing for a while, but I was pretty bored because I had no access to machines or anything anymore. So it was a lot of blog writing, which was not super. <laughs> and then uh, it was June of 2020. I got a call from Tony and he said, hey, are you still interested in, in this whole process or not? Sorry, this whole process, but, you know, coming to work for Kern potentially. I said, uh, you know, yeah, maybe. Uh, why? What, what do you have planned? And uh, he basically explained that, you know, there, there was an East Coast sales guy. His name was Gary. And really unexpectedly, uh, he got a cancer diagnosis. Oh, my goodness. And it was like three or four weeks and he was gone. Wow. And it was, what? yeah, it was, it was very sudden. And I was, you know, even, even still now, it's like I've heard all these stories about Gary and I never got to meet him. And I was pretty I'm still pretty bummed about that and I feel terrible for his family. But he said, hey, you know, we, we have this gap now and we, we need to fill it. Are you interested? Uh, I, I really had to, to stew on it for a while because, you know, I, I owe uh, my whole start to my career because of Datron and the, the people at Datron, still fantastic people. I keep in touch with Chris, for instance, and, and the service guy, Sean, the lead service guy uh, and others. So it's like they're, they're kind of like family to me. And, uh, you know, it, it was a hard decision, but I, I said, I'm not going to have an opportunity to work for Kern like this probably ever again. Who knows? So I, I jumped for it. So, yeah, I put in my last three weeks, wrapped up some of those parts for the BattleBots uh, stuff. And, yeah, ended in mid-July and started with Kern in August of 2020. And, yeah, my role, like I mentioned, is is... Yeah, East Coast sales manager. And I've been doing that ever since. Yeah, for Kern, for Inolight, and for, for 6C. And uh, I don't know what else can I say about that exactly. I, I get to I get to do what I I love because I was very hesitant about coming into sales at first because I don't know any salesperson that has your salesperson, you kind of get the shivers a little. You're like, Ugh, I don't want to talk to a salesperson. <laughs> right. But, you know, I... You could ask, I don't know, Alex Kern or uh, Keaton from Swift Universal or I don't know, any of the, the, the customers that I work with and talk to is that I, I try to, you know, it's not like I can't convince anyone to buy a Kern necessarily through through just blabbing their, their ear off. I like to listen and find out about what customers make and what their problems are. And maybe there's some way that, that Kern can solve it. But it's like, yeah, I you're not going to win over any hearts by, by being that pesky used car salesman style sales guy trying to, to sell current. It doesn't work. That is the truth. Well, and I imagine that you guys are small enough that, you know, you're not the annoying salesman who's knocking on doors. You've got plenty right. of people reaching out and being like, Hey, I want a current. Let's talk yeah. about it. Yep, exactly. So it's, it's, it's a little bit of that. It's, I mean, what, 
you know, what we've done on Instagram has helped out for sure, just in, in raising awareness about the brand. The community has been fantastic uh, to, to, to work with just from the professional perspective. And then just as like a, an independent user myself, like I, I love having the, the Instagram community for, I mean, all sorts of things. Like we'll, we'll get into more details with the Dantron and stuff later. Like it wouldn't be possible without help from these guys so so that's that's definitely part of it and yeah you can't go knocking on doors and saying do you want to buy a current it's basically impossible it, it it is you know still part of my job to like raise awareness about the brand because a lot of shops aren't on instagram so it's you know trying to trying to raise awareness about who current is and what we do and yeah it's it's just cool working for uh, a brand that doesn't have uh the normal sort of technical limitations like we seriously pride ourselves in making the absolute best equipment so yeah i don't know i can see it as like a pretty logical jump from daytron too because at least from the outside and this could be out of pocket but like it seems like there's a lot of similarities as far as like you know both companies if there's something that they can't make or don't make you know they're very good system integrators in addition to machine tool builders yeah so it's it's they have some similarities but there's enough differences where some people were concerned at first they're like oh you're going to kern isn't that competitors to Daytron, and I said, no, like once you dig into the details, you realize pretty quickly that they're in two totally different realms. So it was like a lot of the knowledge that I got in terms of high RPM spindles, that was very handy coming into to Kern because that's all we have. But like vacuum chucks, which is Daytron's jam, Kern doesn't do. I mean, we have very rare vacuum uh, applications, but they don't use the same style vacuum chuck with the, the permeable paper or anything like that. So it's like, yeah, that and the thermal management and just the sheer weight of the machine. There's no gantry style equipment. It's like, right. they're so different that you can't really mistake them for each other. Plus, if you could get it done on a Daytron, you'll probably spend half as much, if not more savings than that to, to do it. So usually it's like when someone's coming to us with with a problem, they've already been rejected for, you know, most other equipment won't do. That's where, yeah, we have, have to solve the problem. Right. Yeah, no, I, I definitely, you know, you see places like M5 Micro and stuff and you're like, nothing else will do for that kind of work, it seems yep. like. Yep, exactly. So it's, it, it's it's good and bad. It's like it's sometimes hard to uncover the the really tough problems. But when you do, it's sometimes kind of easy from that standpoint to be like, oh yeah, you know, uh, if the customer has a thermal drift issue, for instance, I'm doing long run mold work or something like that, then it's pretty easy to say, yeah, we designed the whole machine so that it won't drift more than fifty millikelvin. Uh, that's <laughs> that's kind of hard to to be to dispute. Yeah, there's 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 so much engineering that goes into solving these very difficult technical problems that and and so much done and to validate it that it gives me a, a lot of confidence that i'm representing the right brand i guess definitely well to bookend your story about transferring over to kern uh one question from nh micro uh, he said what was something that surprised you when you toured the current facilities in germany for the first time so i i this was the hardest question of all the ones i got because some were just uh, <laughs> just mean jabs from some of my, uh, some of my friends here on Instagram. And then <laughs> this, this one was actually a good, this was a good one. So I, I stopped and thought long and hard about this because it's like, well, it's like you visit the factory and it's gorgeous area of the country. I mean, it's like goes without saying Southern Germany is just beautiful, but you know, that's not surprising. Everyone's seen the, the pictures and stuff. And 
the facility is gorgeous and, you know, everything is well maintained and well organized. And, you know, it's, it's just a beautiful facility and you would expect nothing less, I guess, from, from a company like Kern. What did surprise me when I, when I started to think more about this question was that I was truly surprised to see the two CEOs walking all over the, the company, you know, hopping into to the production floor to ask a question. And this, the, you know, we have Simon, who's like head of sales and marketing, and then Sebastian, who's like the technical lead, sort of the CTO. And I'd see Sebastian, you know, he was like sitting in on a technical presentation by one of the students, uh, one of the interns that were there. He was working on a project on the machine. And, you know, they're easily accessible. They're easily relatable. They're not much older than you and I. I think they're in their early 40s. So it's maybe a little bit different than, it, not, to, not to knock Datron, but they, they're a publicly traded company. And Kern is not. It's still completely, the ownership lies pretty much with, with Simon Sebastian primarily. And you can tell that their investment in it is different. So it, it was... It was really kind of too cool to just be in the thick of it and and see that such a big, impressive company can kind of act like a small, nimble, innovative company. I just, I thought it was a pretty, pretty cool thing. Yeah, that's amazing. I mean, that is very rare, I think, in any kind of company. Yeah. Uh, and then his other question was, what are the most common questions customers ask you? Price. Yeah, it's always price first. Not not surprising. And this was one of the things that when I met with Tony for the first time, uh, he was like, so how much do you think a current costs? I'm like, well, it's clearly a million dollars, right? Everyone says it costs a million dollars at a minimum. And then you got to tool it up. And uh, he was like, no, actually, the, the average price was quite a bit lower than that. And like, in my experience, I, it varies. So like, if if you're getting something like uh, an Evo, it's much less. It's something like, you know, more more realistically in the 300,000 range. If you're getting something like an HD, then it's going to be a lot more. It's going to be more in the 800,000 range. But it's like you could configure either of those machines with so many different options for spindles or automation or tool changer size or blood coolant type, et cetera, that it can really range all over the place. So it's, of course, possible to build a million dollar Kern, but I'll say it's not the common, you know, I think the out, out, out the door price is typically quite a bit lower than that. So it's, it's, it was kind of a, an interesting thing to, to learn about was just that, you know, we're actually pretty price competitive compared to a, a lot of, you know, brands like Micron or Hermla or whatever. They've got pretty pricey equipment too. It's it's not just us. It's not like we're an outlier. So so that was something that surprised me. And yeah, it's definitely the most common question, not surprisingly. But that and, you know, what what sort of industries do you serve is is a pretty common one, which if I had to answer it is like uh, a lot in semiconductor, a lot in defense, a lot in medical that seems to be growing for sure, whether it's like implants or instruments, it, it sort of runs the, the gambit. And some of it, you know, of course, we can't talk too much about because of NDAs, et cetera, but it's, it's pretty well diverse. And then, I don't know, other common questions. Yeah, it's usually just, you know, I, they see something on Instagram and they want to know more about it. You know, tell me about the internal workpiece automation or, you know, what, what the travels are, et cetera. It's sort of the, the common stuff, but 
price is definitely number one question that <laughs> always comes up. <laughs> I, I totally understand it. I've asked it myself. Yep. Uh, the, the internal workpiece automation is pretty sweet. Like when I saw that on, I mean, actually, you know, Josh, who asked the question, when I saw yep. that on there, as in like the videos he took, I was like, man, that is like such a nice package. Yeah, it's, I think, uh, for 30 pallets, it's $40,000 roughly. So it's actually a really good value and it doesn't add any room to the, the, the size of the enclosure. So it's, it, it's kind of a no brainer for a lot of customers who are like, I'm thinking about getting automation. Like maybe they're, they're doing short run sort of work and it's surprising. A lot of customers or people I talk to at least are still hesitant about doing automation for short run stuff. They always think automation means you're doing like thousands of pieces. So if you can sort of get them to think differently about automation as being, you know, your second shift uh, that you don't have to, you know, pay health health insurance for, then it becomes kind of a, a no brainer to utilize that internal workpiece automation to buy back your, your hours during the day. Yeah. Well, and I don't know of any other machine tool that you can spend less than 10% of the purchase price and get automation for it. You know, yeah, that's like yeah. killer. Like that's a, like you said, it's it's kind of a no brainer at that point. Yep. But yeah, it's actually and funny. It's, Josh asked that question, and I I had never even heard of Kurt until uh, the NYC CNC tour of Hacko, and then saw their pyramid. Yeah. And I was like, oh, that's kind of interesting. And then you know, you know, Grismo got one, and like it be- started becoming more of a name that I I understood. But I had literally never even heard the name, or if I had, it had not stuck at all until then. Yeah. This is this is sort of like where there's still work to be done, I think, and we're we're getting we're getting good at it. And Instagram is a huge help, but it's like you talk to some people and they're like, "Oh yeah, Kern, you make the really precise desktop machines, right?" So they think of the MMT, which is like the first Kern from you know 40 years ago at this point. And I'm like, "Well, yes, we did make that machine, but we don't make it anymore. And you know, now our machines weigh six tons and are five axis. So it's like, <laughs> it's it's." It's interesting that, you know, a lot of Kern is advertised by word of mouth because we have this great reputation. So it's like we're not pouring dollars into Google AdWords or, you know, ads in, in magazines or anything like that. So um, it's, it is getting, getting the word out. So this is why I'm really looking for MTS because uh, we'll have a micro HD there. And then, you know, I know everyone from Instagram will come and see it, and that's great. But I really am looking forward to stopping people in, in the aisle that have just never seen the big red machine before. <laughs> oh yeah, um, and and letting them know Kern isn't maybe what they thought it was. Definitely, yeah. It, it's a uh, the, the whole micro line looks so spaceshipy and like very futuristic that it, it's it's definitely an eye catcher. Yeah. Yep. Well, we have got a million questions uh let's see kins precision foot pedal jones murph's machine all asked about the dantron and so let's get into what it that is where it's at what's the next update all that good stuff so i'll i'll give the quick backstory on the dantron for any listeners that haven't seen it on my instagram but this was probably 2018 i think i uh i had been actually let's go yeah let's go way way back it was like my first year working at Datron. I had to service this M4, which uh, if you, I don't you know if you can even find it, if you Google search it, but an M4 is basically like before there was the Neo, they had the M9. And before the M9, there was the M4. 
So it's it's a, a bridge style, so fixed gantry with a moving y-axis and cast iron construction. It's like one of the only Daytrons you'll see with a T-slot table. Travels are roughly like 300 by 400, 300X, 400Y, 2, 250Z, something like that. Uh, in inches, that would be uh, 12 by 16 by 10, we'll say. And I had to work on this machine that had sort of fallen into a state of disrepair. So I had done like a PM service on it, whatever. And yeah, I got it back up and running, had to replace a control unit or something along those lines, uh, some electronics fried on it, but I got it back up and running, but it had a spindle converter issue and you couldn't run the spindle, which was like a 60,000 RPM Jaeger spindle. Uh, you couldn't get it up past 15 or 20,000, something like that. So the machine wasn't super useful for what they were doing anymore, which was, I want to say it was like an investment casting uh, die machining, something like that. Uh, for It was for a jeweler, jewelry industry. And uh, so I got the machine back up and running, but, you know, like I checked on them and I'm like, hey, are you guys using the machine? They said, ah, no, not really. You know, it's broken still. And we're, I think we're going to get another piece of equipment, blah, blah, blah. So, okay, I kept that in the back of my mind for a while. And I touch base with them, you know, every couple of years and say, hey, are you guys using your M4? What's the status update? And eventually they replied with, no, you know what? We don't really use it anymore and we want to sell it. I said, okay, you know, uh, I'll give you, I lowballed. I, I, I'm not even sure if I want to say it seems almost <laughs> insulting. I, but I lowballed them because at this point, the M4 was running on like really early Datron control that Datron doesn't, doesn't support anymore. So not even Daytron wanted the machine back because like it's nice machine, but you would have to retrofit a new control on it. It just wasn't going to happen. It's too expensive. So I gave them a low ball offer and they were insulted and they said, no, you know, we're not, we won't take it. Okay. So like another year goes by and I say, Hey, you still have the machine. And eventually I got to a different person than who I was talking to. And he said, uh, yeah, we want to get rid of it. We, we got to make room. I said, great. You know, send me some photos of it. I just want to make sure it looks the, the way it did last time I saw it. And they sent over the photos and I take a look at it and I, everything looks great, except it's, uh, I don't see the control terminal for it. So it's basically got like a, a tower rack that would sit off to the side that had the spindle converter and a bunch of the electronics and the PC and the monitor and mouse, everything up top. And I said, yeah, I, I don't have a photo of the control stand terminal. You know, can you send me a photo of that? And they said, oh, no, we threw that out. It's, uh, it's, <laughs> it's our company policy, our IT policy to throw away PCs instead, you know, just dispose of them for security reasons. Oh, my God. <laughs> oh, <laughs> well, just so you know, you threw away like more than half the electronics that you need to run the machine. So I changed my, my offer <laughs> <laughs> uh, from an insultingly low offer to, uh, I mean, it was no longer insulting for me. Right. I offered them scrap value for the machine, 150 bucks. And they said, yep, that's fine. Come get it. <laughs> so I hopped in uh, my friend's truck, uh, Sean, actually the, the service tech that still works there. And we managed to load an M4 in the back of his Nissan Titan pickup truck. And, you know, that truck was kind of crying mercy, you know, for the, the whole two hour ride home, but we made it, uh, <laughs> kind of 
funny is that I didn't have a forklift at my house to unload it. I was just about to ask, yeah, how did you get it out? <laughs> <laughs> so I got creative. There's a business down the road for me that sells pellets, like uh, wood pellets for, for pellet stoves. And it was, this was like November, October or something like that. So I needed a couple tons of pellets anyway. So I said, Hey guys, if, if I buy two tons of pellets from you, can you use your forklift to transfer this machine from the back of the truck into your delivery truck? And they said, yeah, we don't care. So they did it. They unloaded my two tons of pellets and one Datron <laughs> into my garage. And yeah, now, now there it sits. So I've had that machine for, yeah around three years or so at this point, three and a half. And basically, you know, long story short is, is there was so little left to work with on the Datron side that in order for me to restore it as a, a Datron control machine would have just been prohibitively expensive. Uh, you know, even if I tried to source all these parts from, you know, other users and, you know, I know a few that might have some of these components, like the fact of the matter is if any of them died and I had to go back to Datron to get them replaced, then it's going to cost me an arm and a leg, which is, you know, I, I'm, this is for my personal use. I'm not a company yet, at least. So I can't really do that. It wouldn't work for me. Right. Um, so my research started into what sort of servos I should get, what sort of, uh, control I should get, uh, et cetera. And yeah, over the last couple of, of years, regret, regrettably, it's taken years to get to this point, but with a lot of help from people in, in the Instagram community, I've been able to get ClearPath servos together, Masso controller. I've had a heck of a time finding the, the keyless bushings for adapting. This is belt drive on X, Y, and Z. So I had to take the original pulley, bore out the ID. So I brought that to a friend with a machine shop nearby board those out and then get a new keyless bushing to adapt uh, from a metric shaft to the inch shaft that's on a clear path servo. So yeah, where we're at right now is that basically the motors are mounted. I build new adapter plates for that. Uh, I have all the wiring, power supplies, etc. I've started doing some servo tuning uh, on the Z axis and yeah, my issue is just setting the time aside to peck away at it because what's happened so far is it's been a matter of like, all right, you know, I'll work on this when I have a nice chunk of time. And when do I have a nice chunk of time? Usually the holiday break at the end of the year. So you'll see a burst of activity around December, January. <laughs> <laughs> and then I'm like, all right, now I'm going to like set aside, uh, you know, one night a week, I'm going to go out and work on it. You know, and, and inevitably it just doesn't happen because once once the you know once the 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 winter break is over, it's just like back to business as usual and get involved with family stuff and work stuff. So where I'm at now is really just trying to find a, a realistic plan for for sacrificing a few hours every weekend or something along those lines to to chip away at the machine and get it going. So to to everyone who's helped me along the way, if I had to. To name some names, David Burrell from Neo7 CNC, Matt Hurdle from Pocket NC, uh, Ed Kramer versus CNC. Uh, everyone has been like a huge wealth of knowledge and and help. And uh, I'm still working on it, and it, it will get finished. I I promise. <laughs> so what's um, left to do? You said maybe servo tuning, and then what else? Yeah, so it's it's pretty much once the servos are tuned, then it's a matter of. On the control side, basically just wiring that in and setting the travel limits. So I've 
got to put proximity switches on X and Y. Uh, I've already got a limit switch in Z, so that's all set. I'm going to leave the tool changer for last. So one of the one of the parts I was able to to get from from Matt is one of the test spindles that they were using on the the Pocket NC Solo. Uh, so it's it's a HSK 25 spindle, uh, 30,000 RPM. They ended up not going with that spindle because it's air-cooled instead of liquid-cooled. That's a small sacrifice to make for, for a garage machine. So I need to build a spindle mount for that as well. Yeah, I have a probe for the machine as well, but it's the Datron-style probe, which flips up out of the way. So I need to figure if I can even make that work through Masso control. So it's going to be... It's going to be kind of a long journey. I think it's it will start off with master control and then it may uh, inevitably end up on Mach 4 or something like that if I can't make it do what I want. Or Linux CNC is probably the, the other realistic replacement. But yeah, it's it's a lot of that. I have some, I have in my, my shop news, I have uh, an idea that I wanted to, I don't know, maybe bounce around a little bit and see what you thought about it for the the other thing I need to tackle, which is an electronics enclosure for uh for all the power supplies and things like that so but we'll get into that later okay very cool oh uh, and i guess part of part of the question that i saw here from from uh, alex kent's the the goal for the daytron in terms of like what do i w- actually want to do with this uh when i i got the machine i just wanted the machine and i didn't know what i was going to do with it and i still don't know exactly what i'm going to do with it what what i'd like is to have a machine that's yeah capable enough with an ATC that holds somewhat decent tolerances that if uh, I can come up with a product idea, which I've had a few ideas here and there, no lightning in a bottle, but that I would like to be able to have this you know operational just as sort of uh, some some side income and yeah for doing some personal projects and stuff like that. Something nice to, to fall back on for sure, because I certainly do miss running a machine on a day-to-day basis. And a Shapeoko gets you a, a, it will help <laughs> scratch that itch. But, you know, it's, uh, I mean, like anyone with, I'm sure, like, you know, stepping up into a brother, uh, it gives, it scratches that itch. But then you'll probably want to step into something more like everyone else has. I mean, John Grimsmo started with a grizzly mill and now has a Kern. So. Right, exactly. And he's not and he's not stopping. <laughs> yeah, yeah. Well, and especially in prototyping, like I am, and with my customers, it, there's the ever push towards like, hey, can you make this just perfect? Like, can I <laughs> can I just give you a model and you make a perfect thing? And it's like, oh, uh huh, yeah, I'll, I'll give it a shot. Yeah. Thanks. Yeah. Press print. Right. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> Uh, let's see. MKE Machine asked, has it been difficult transitioning from an apps role to a sales role? So, no. I guess the reason it's it hasn't been is that it was sort of the logical transition. I've, I've known of a few application engineers in the past that have moved into a sales role before. Actually, one of them still works at Datron. He was sort of like my, 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 my colleague there in applications, Kevin Mulhern. He was like my go-to uh, applications, you know, cohort. They were both working on similar projects at the same time, but he was a much more experienced machinist uh, than I was by by comparison. So he had a lot more of the traditional knowledge. So I knew I could sort of always turn to him if I needed some advice or you know some brutal honesty on on how I was programming something or my feeds and speeds, etc. And you know, likewise, if I knew something about macro programming that he didn't, we would share that. But you know, he was a very, very good applications engineer 
And before I left Atron, he ended up going into sales there, which was a big surprise. But it it made total sense uh, when you stopped and thought about, you know, not not generally speaking, but occasionally working at, at Daytron, I'd have to work with a salesperson that they hired in that didn't have any machining background uh, or, you know, outside of the machine tool industry. And it was a lot of handholding uh, on the application side, especially when it came time to do a, a customer demonstration or something like that. And, you know, they had got them so far as to get them in the door. But when you start doing a demo, then it's like you're product knowledge just shines through and then they start turning to you for answers and things like that, that it sort of got to the point where, you know, I was like, why am I in, I'm helping these sales guys out and, you know, they're, they're doing well, but it's like, I'm not really reaping any benefits from that necessarily, you know, besides the company doing well. So that's, that's always good, but it's like, maybe I could do sales. So when Kevin left to do that, it really got me thinking about, you know, maybe I, do sales if I could get over the the title. So it it actually, you know, that's that's sort of what Tony convinced me of is like when he asked me about doing sales for Kern was like, we we need technical salespeople. You can't just be like the used car salesman type and sell a Kern. It will it will never work. So so he's basically convinced me that yeah, having having that app's real world hands-on knowledge, having done there and been, you know, having been there and done that. It helps to make sure that I not only know what I'm talking about, but I'm not going to try to sell something to somebody not knowing if it's actually going to work. Right. Because I had been in that position before when a salesperson, you know, wrote a check that I couldn't cash. <laughs> um, yeah, there's something so special about having salesmen that know the product or at least know how to cut metal. You know, I, I, I can very easily tell when I start, you know, showing salespeople you know, parts that we've made or something or talking tolerances, like you can either see that they are engaged and understand what I'm talking about, or it just like they glossed over like, uh-huh. Yeah. Yep. Yeah. 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 Yep. Here, That's here's nice. a brochure. Like. <laughs> yep. Yeah. So it's, it's, yeah, I guess I just try to stick with the reason I love doing apps was because I try, I like to think that I'm kind of a, a CNC nerd uh, a bit. I mean, I, otherwise I probably wouldn't have a Datron in my garage. So yeah, I just, I just sort of nerd out with with my customers and and that works out pretty well and yeah it it, it as long as we can uh in, enjoy the the conversation then yeah that's all that that matters for sure uh another great question from alex kern he's got a two-parter who was your biggest teacher in your career and how did they prepare you for your eventual entry into the inner sanctums of vultures <laughs> Uh, Alex has this, uh, this thing with Marv where they, they just refer to me as a, a sales vulture, which, you know, now I, <laughs> now I've become accustomed to. And, uh, generally speaking, whenever I send Alex a message, I end it with a, a caw at the end, <laughs> just to, just to make the vulture noises. So the biggest teacher in my career, this was another kind of really good question, but tough. Cause I know that like Alex had a mentor in in the machine shop, but you know, me, myself, I never worked at a machine shop. The most machining I ever did before uh, working at Datron was turning brake rotors uh, on cars. So, which I, I wish I, I had uh, even a little bit of knowledge back then. I could have turned them a lot better. So uh, my biggest influencers and, and teachers sort of changed over the years. So, you know, when I started, it was Chris Hopkins, for instance, you know, giving me that that Mastercam Home Learning Edition 
And, you know, he had a lot of the knowledge that I needed to get started with programming and feeds and speeds and things like that. But it was, it was tough because he uh, ended up going to run the West Coast office in June of 2013. So I only had a small overlap with him. So it was a lot of calling him on the phone and, and begging for help. But, you know, when, when Kevin Mulhern started at Daytron, then he was, you know, just having him, you know, by my side to, to, yeah, have the practical knowledge, bounce ideas off of, became really invaluable. So he, yeah, I, I progressed a lot in working with him. And also there was like this competitive nature between the two of us that we always wanted to sort of outdo each other. And that, I know that moved me forward uh, a lot to be better at what I was doing. So, yeah, you know, in, in the sales perspective too, my, my brother, you know, he's still, he doesn't work at Daytron anymore, but he still has been in sales for a long time. But I would put him in that sort of category of, you know, the, the honest sales guy, if there's a better solution for what you're trying to accomplish, then he's going to tell you, you know, there's, there's definitely ethics in, in sales and not everyone appreciates that, uh, as a salesperson. So I've had that sort of embedded into me that, you know, don't, don't sell something to somebody if they don't need it. It's, it won't, bode well for you in the long term uh you know your your name is basically your your yeah you live and die by what people say about you so it's like yeah it, that's what i learned learned from from him was yeah just just be honest and and if it's not a good fit for a kern then they'll you know the people you work with will appreciate hearing that because someday maybe they'll have something that that actually belongs on a kern and they're going to remember you so yeah that's that's made me a good vulture Alex. <laughs> uh, that's a good one. So, yeah, I think that's, that's about it. And then I guess two joke questions also from Alex and from Mickey. What is all of this about Jingdao? Because yeah. they, they both asked independently of each other, how does Kern plan to counter the high precision, high accuracy of Jingdao machines? And I've seen them post something about this and I, Obviously, I have not been included in the, the joke. So, yeah, Mickey and Alex are just devious. They're like, if they're like, if you leave two kids in a room with uh, lighter fluid and uh, and a candle, like things are going to end badly. <laughs> uh, so, what what happened was I'd been working with Alex since like September or so of 2020 when he first reached out, and he was doing all his research about you know getting getting a new machine, and you know it had been. A, long journey. I'd met with him a bunch of times. We had dinner, you know, and lots of phone calls and lots of DMs. And, you know, he went out and he visited Marv and he did the test cut. And then from, from there, he was like, all right, I think, you know, we're going to move forward with, with getting a Kern. And, uh, you know, I was basically waiting for, for the purchase order to, to arrive. And Alex messaged me and said, sorry, man, uh, I can't do this. I'm, we're going to get a Jingdao instead. <laughs> He's like, <laughs> <laughs> and, and you know, at, at first I was because you didn't call me; you just DM'd me, so I couldn't tell. You know, I I couldn't hear any laughter in the background or anything. So at first I said, "Oh, you're you're messing with me. You're that's funny." And he said, "No, seriously, we're we're gonna go with the Jingdao." And uh, my heart sank basically. Oh. <laughs> <laughs> and you know, Alex couldn't keep up the the gig too long, but you know, he he let me know, and I felt a lot better. But come to find out, this was like uh, between Marv and Alex and Mickey, just this this evil plan to mess with me. Oh man! <laughs> so now Jingdao comes up in conversation more often than it should. Like. <laughs> 
Uh, that's so. great. Well, I'm sure he told uh, Mickey that he was going to get a current. He said, well, I wouldn't do it that way, but okay. Exactly. Yes, that's the other one. <laughs> oh, that's great. All right. So some car questions we got. MK Machine asked, do you miss working on rusty cars for a living? Mm-mm. Yes and no. So for a living, no. Uh, but in general, yes, to some extent. I mean, the the reason I left working on cars is because I did want to preserve it as something that I love to to do. So, and, you know, I haven't been able to really dig into that because, yeah, I had kids now starting 14 years ago. So I got pretty distracted from working on cars uh, as a hobby. So I just I just started getting back into that. I picked up a, a 2008 uh, Miata, NC Miata, last year just for having fun with and taking autocross and, you know, messing around with uh, on the track, but also bringing my son into the fold in terms of like getting his hands dirty and, you know, doing the brakes with him or replacing the coolant reservoir, things like that. I just, I, I wanted to get him involved and also have something with a manual transmission to learn on. Uh, so he's already done that. Now we're on like lesson number five of how to drive a stick. So nice. he's doing, he's doing pretty well with that. So, but yeah, it's, I, I definitely did miss working on working on cars to some extent. There's it's, I, I think you can kind of relate it to, to working at, on a machine is that sometimes you just want to open up fusion and cam something and go and concentrate on cutting it and just like zone out everything else. I know, yeah, there were occasions when I worked at Daytron where I'd wait for everyone to leave at five o'clock before I started cutting apart because I could just like zone in on that and focus. So there is something definitely peaceful about just saying, yep, I'm yeah, gonna, I don't know, fix whatever on my car and turn the music up loud and just focus on that for a little bit. So, uh, yeah, long story short, working on cars for a living, hard pass. Working on cars for a hobby is fantastic. Awesome. Yeah, what I, I was going to ask you when you mentioned you worked at Ford, Nissan, and Mazda, I was going to ask, you know, which one did you prefer? Uh, you know, clearly from your purchase, you know, you must have liked your Mazdas. Yeah, so I mean, I started at Ford because it was a job and I only did that for, for about a year. But uh, the dealership I worked at closed down. And then uh, I was pretty excited to work at Nissan because I had my 240SX and I, I really loved that car. Um, but I was pretty disillusioned because uh, the the 240 I had was in an era when it was Nissan was sole ownership of Nissan. Right. And in like 2001 or 2002, they became like majority owned by Renault, French company. And those are the cars that I had to work on, which had like recalls. Uh, I don't know. The first year of the Altima had like eight recalls for all sorts of stupid stuff. The floorboards would rot out on them like after five years. I mean, it's a New England thing that that happens, but also like some cars last, you know, 10, 15 years and other cars would last like five years. So yeah, the quality was just bad. <laughs> yeah. So I, I was pretty bummed that working for Nissan wasn't as such a glorious product as, as I had hoped for. Um, and the dealership I worked for just kind of stunk too. So when I left there and went to Mazda, I didn't really expect too much, but I sort of came to find out that the product was quite a bit better. So yeah, now, now we're kind of a, a Mazda family to some extent. We've got a CX-5 and, and an MX-5, though the company uh, 
car that I'm driving is is German because I mean German brand it makes complete sense. Yeah, <laughs> of course. So so yeah, but for for just sort of getting the family around and then for messing around with it's hard to beat uh something like an MX5. Though an MR2 would be pretty good as well. They're not bad. Yeah, I I don't know that the the thin J10 would hold up to any New England shenanigans, but <laughs> yeah, yeah. My brother's got an MR2 from Arizona with like 200,000 miles on it, but no rust so far. But it's only coming out, you know, in the seasons when there's no salt on the road. Right. Yeah. So, yeah. Well, and I noticed that you went for a Mazda without a, a magic Dorito in it, which is probably a, a good, good idea as well. There's, there's one for sale right down the road from my house that, they're so tempting. Those were those were always the most fun to to take out for a test drive after you work on them because nothing wails like a rotary engine at nine thousand RPM. But right. yeah, when it explodes and it leaves you stranded, then that's not so good. So, yeah, I had a friend uh, in high school that was looking at like a bunch of different cars because he crashed his motorcycle and then got an insurance payout and was looking at a bunch of stuff. And one of them was a RX eight, and I was like, do not get it. I was like, you will eat those apex seals in a heartbeat. I've seen how you ride. I've seen I've seen how you drive. And he's like, no, you're you're full of shit. And like, literally two months later, it was like, yeah. So my car's down because it ate its apex seals. I was like, oh, huh? What you don't say. Don't do that. Yeah. <laughs> so it's like the ultimate tragedy because that engine's so cool, but I it's so fundamentally flawed that I don't think it will ever make a mainstream return. I think I had heard about it being basically a generator for a hybrid car. I forget for what company. I, I might have been for Mazda, but I don't. I don't know if I'll ever see the light of day. It doesn't pass emission standards either, right? But yeah, know, modern standards. It's such a cool idea, like you said, and like the the power per liter is through the roof. But yeah. it is so, so like such a, a fine line between exploding and not exploding. You know, it's yeah. like and you got to inject oil and like, you know, it's just a, a, an entirely different kind of motor. It's it's weird, too, because uh, this is quite a tangent, but this is this is the stuff I love is they had a version of that engine uh, in the Le Mans car for two years, I think. I think it was a three rotor or a four rotor. I forget. Yeah. And the but, 787. Yes. Yep, exactly. So from what I had heard is that after they raced, they tore the engine apart and it showed no signs of appreciable wear. So it's basically with that engine, if you are beating the bag out of it, then it will work. It runs great in that case. But the minute you start grainying it and like shifted low RPMs and stuff like that, then it just pukes its guts out. (laughs) (laughs) Have you seen Rob Dom's four rotor, four rotor RX-7? No. So he has like one of three four rotor crankshafts in the world. And wow. he, there's a, a an episode of what is it? This versus that on Hoonigan where he races the, the Hoonicorn, but he basically copied the Hoonicorn. So he has a very similar all wheel drive system from uh, Sadev and all that stuff. And it's, yeah, I think it makes a thousand horsepower or something like that. Ugh. It's just insane. I mean, it is an absolute monster. That's awesome. Yeah. Yeah. I had seen, I believe Travis Pastrana is, is with Hoonigan or he's, he's doing the Gymkhana stuff now. Yeah. To my knowledge, I, we went to, uh, Mount Washington climb to the clouds, which was there. They do a, a hill climb every three or four years. And so we saw him do his world record run last year with that, his, uh, his 
STI race That's car. Awesome. It was wicked. So uh, the I, onboard footage is insane. Like it, it just the way they captured it was so perfect because you really feel like you're just on the edge and going to go over any second. If if you ever, <laughs> this makes me feel like a total wuss, but I drove up Mount Washington with my family. And it probably took us like an hour to do because, you know, it's you have people flying down in one direction. Then you have sections of gravel, of course. So it's like a super sketchy ride. And I one of those rare instances where I wish I took an automatic instead, because it was just like beating the crap out of my clutch every corner where I was like shifting from second to first, second to first, (laughs) second to first over and over again. And I remember after doing that, it was just like white knuckle the whole time. And my kids were fighting and I was like. You better shut up or we're all going to die <laughs> in the back seat. And we got back down and we were at like, we were at dinner or something. And I found the, the Travis Pastrana run from like the year before. And I was, I swear having like PTSD watching him fly up the mountain, just like, I was just here doing this and that's not possible. <laughs> oh yeah. Yeah. We went up uh, Pike's peak when I was a kid, we took a family trip to Colorado and went up there. Yeah. And I had a, a friend in college who would actually won first place in the supermoto uh, class and right. went up there and like, yeah, just insane. Like you're like, okay, so it takes with traffic like two hours to the top and you're like, you just did it and whatever, you know, it's like, what, how, like that's insane. <laughs> yeah. It, it's really hill climbs are so cool. Yeah. Well, speaking of racing, uh, inspiration Metalworks, Tom asked, what are you going to do to get better at autocross? Um, all right, so this is complicated because, uh, so like I, I mentioned, I used to do this a long time ago when I had my 240SX and really didn't know what I was doing. I mean, I was only 17, 18, something like that. And I put myself back in the novice class because I just I was like, oh, let's just pretend I've never done this before and I'm starting over. And I want to try to stay in the, the C Street class that I'm in as long as I can. Uh, because like the minute you put lowered springs on it, it bumps you into a a new class where people are just going to smoke you. So I have some, uh, possibility of, of not that I'm trying to be super competitive at this stage, but it's nice to come home with like the little foam trophy that they give you when you place fifth. (laughs) (laughs) So mechanically about all I can do to to get better right now is a front sway bar. I already have 200 treadwear tires, which is like the lowest treadwear rating you can go before you're in a different class. Yeah, that's about it. You can technically there's some ways to cheat the cheat the system because like for for one year Mazda made a, an MX5 with like a limited slip and different springs and different sway bars and all this stuff. So like technically you can be in a stock class and have all these modifications, but you're basically bending the rule book. So, you know, I also want to try to avoid falling into that pitfall where I just pour money into my car because I'd like to, I don't mind spending the money over a long term and like get the enjoyment out of it, but I don't want to, you know, spend twice as much as what I bought it for uh, in order to try to be competitive in a class. So really the rest of the season, I'll probably leave the car, uh, the car as is and just work on improving the problem behind the wheel, which is me. Yep. That's so always the cheapest mod, the driver mod. Exactly. Yeah, <laughs> exactly. And it's like, yeah, I just knew from from last weekend I, I did it. I could see my times go up and then I pushed it too far and it went back down. And I'm still learning like what tire pressures are right for, for these tires. And 
yeah, I should really go to one of the driving schools that they have. They're they're pretty good in in this region about having a driving school three or four times a year that you can go to on the same course. It's a it's an airfield that's basically abandoned that we have a, a mile mile loop that we can we can do there. So I should just go out one weekend, spend the money, and have a professional teach me what I'm doing wrong. So we'll see. For now, that's the that's the goal is just to improve. Yeah, myself. Yeah. That's a, a great idea. I mean, I think that autocross is fairly focused on that anyway. I mean, there's only have, so much. Have you, I have done it yet. yourself? No, I, I haven't. There's actually one here at the a small airport up north, but I've never had a car together at the same time I had time to do it, which yep. just kind of sucked. And like the MR2 has been sitting for, I don't know, six months now or something like that. So maybe once I put it back together, I'll try my hand at it. It's a humbling experience because you'll go there and feel pretty good about your car and you're like, you know, I'm going to do all right. And then you finish and then you see that some, you know, 20 year old Ford Focus beat you in, in like, like not only did they beat you on time, but like if you compare it to the, the PAX numbers. So like if you adjust for what class they're in, they really beat you. They're like they're in third <laughs> place and you're in like ninth and you're like, oh, my God, I suck at this. So it's humbling for sure. And uh, and it's a it's a ton of fun. So I'd recommend it for for any listener. Just take what you've got as long as it's not a truck. And yeah, go do it. And have fun. Yeah, definitely. Well, that brings us on to shop news and new things. What's what's new in your world? Uh, so this is uh, I wanted to to talk quickly about the Dantron and sort of pick pick brains on on this. I don't you Dylan, you haven't done like a machine build on your own before, have you? I have not. Though. Okay. So this is a lesson, listener question. Uh, just send me a DM if you have answers for this. Part of my hang up in proceeding. I think like this is part of my issue in general with this project is doing too much research <laughs> and, and, you know, being like, oh, I could go this direction or that direction. I don't know the servo is right or, you know, what control. Sometimes I just need to stop thinking and just buy something so I can find out if it works or doesn't. So the issue where I'm having that now is getting an electronics enclosure because you can go and get these like NEMA rated electronics housings, enclosures, whatever cabinets, but they're pretty expensive. Uh, you know, easily spending five, six hundred dollars on just a, a a box to put your electronics in. Um, so I'm curious uh, if anyone has an opinion on making their own. And my idea essentially is I have some space underneath where the table is that it's basically think like thick steel uh, sheet metal frame holding up the the table, and underneath there's quite a bit of space. We'll say something like 24 inches maybe uh, of just empty space underneath. There's a really small chip tray that hangs close underneath the table for collecting chips. But underneath that, there's plenty of room for for components that was going completely unused before. So what I'm thinking is modeling something in Fusion uh, in the sheet metal extension and sending it to uh, Send, Cut, Send and folding it and silicone sealing the corners and basically creating an electronic enclosure yeah, myself that I could potentially save a chunk of change, but also fit into usable space underneath. I'm reluctant on buying uh, a cabinet separately because if it doesn't fit in the machine, then it just makes the footprint bigger. And I am, you know, I've got a decent amount of room in my garage, but not that much. So I, I want to try to keep it tidy as possible. 
Right. Are you planning on running flood coolant on this machine, or is it just going to be air mist like a Datron? Yeah, I was going to keep it in the the Datron theme of of using just some sort of spray mist. I'll probably start with the the really cheap thirty dollar option off Amazon or eBay. You know, eventually it would be nice to have something like the Microjet system where that's a pressurized tank, so it's a much more steady stream. But yeah, in the long term, probably just that plus isopropyl alcohol because it's it's cheap and available. But yeah, no flood coolant plants okay. for this machine. I mean, it sounds like a, a well-sealed homebrew solution would probably do you fine then. Yeah. So that's, that's been sort of at the, the top of my mind lately, but I should really just, I mean, if you look at my, uh, I think I have a recent post up there. Maybe it's just in my stories where right now I have half the electronics set up on a piece of plywood that I have clamped to the, the frame with a couple of like carpentry style, uh, clamps. I forget what you call them, but, just because I, I get to that point where I'm like, I'm not making progress because I'm too worried about the, the details. So I started started doing that at least. So that will get me by for a while, but eventually it's going to have to go into a, a real enclosure. So yeah, if anybody has feedback on that, uh, then I'd be really curious to, to hear what you guys think. I mean, I would imagine if you, going back to your automotive roots, if you wired it to use like engine harness plugs, Mm, yeah then worst case you could swap out your control board you know control cabinet without having to rewire the whole machine yep yeah that's true i mean those are generally speaking sealed for for water and stuff like that so they'd be fine with chips a lot of the connectors that are on like the clear path servos are pretty similar style where you know they're just plastic connectors but they have little rubber gaskets on them for for protection so yeah that with like a bulkhead fitting on the back for all the plugs probably work out pretty nicely yeah so that way you can make a mistake and it won't you know take you down for till the next year's holiday break break. (laughs) (laughs) Uh, cool well and then you put down kern news what what's new in kern's world so yeah i i didn't i was a little light on things going on in my shop (laughs) besides the what's going on with the miata oh i guess couple of things to share is, uh, of course, we'll be at IMTS this year. Uh, I wanted to share that. And basically why that's kind of cool and worth sharing is we'll have the micro HD there with the internal workpiece changer. So we'll have a bunch of different parts set up. We're working on one surprise part right now. We're keeping it under lock and key, but really excited to, to share more about that. But one thing I can tell you, and we don't really have the specifics on it yet, but it's it's sort of uh, still in 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 development is we're going to basically say, bring your broken carbide end mill to the show and flip it upside down, stick it into a uh, chuck, and we will machine something into the end of it for you so that you can take it back home. Oh, that's cool. So we're, we're trying to devise what the, the coolest thing that we can mill into the end of it will be that will make it like kind of a cool keepsake. So yeah, that's that's what we're working on right now. Just make sure that if you're going to bring the an end mill back home, that you stick it in your luggage, please. If you're flying, <laughs> <laughs> yeah, I wonder how they'd react to that. Like TSA does not like it when you bring cutting tools through uh, security, and I know that because yeah, I did that once by accident. Like left the customer site from an installation and was like rushed to the airport and realized that I had like just a few cutting tools in my my backpack, and yeah, they stopped me. I had to go back 
bring it to my luggage. That was fine. But they gave me a very thorough pat down after. So check it in your bag. please. <laughs> That's so funny. That's like when I was coming back from AU that year, they lost their mind over my uh, space mouse. Like they like <laughs> scanned my bag a few times that had to unpack the whole thing. And like it had it like my laptop in there too and a mouse. And like, I'm like, why, why this? Like, why right. are you freaking out about another piece of electronics? Right. Of you, all things. Yeah. Look, you think the air quality meter would like, it's the most bomb looking thing. Right. Yeah. They, they were right next to each other and they were like, no, 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 no. This like actual consumer product is the thing we have an issue with. Not, not this homebrew of clearly like a weird electronic thing. Like, all right, whatever. Uh, that's funny. So, so yeah, IMTS, we're excited about that. We're going to be doing Ceramics Expo before that, a couple of weeks before that's in Cleveland, Ohio. So, you know, I don't know how many ceramics machinists we have here. Uh, it's been a pretty popular thing for us because, yeah, of all the work that Marv put into it. Oh, you know, I should add that too. I was thinking about that question. Sorry to go way, way back, but who is your biggest teacher in your career? Uh, Marv is definitely one of them in, in terms of taking really high level subjects and sort of bringing it down to earth. Yeah, he's been very patient with me because you can tell that his intelligence is definitely up here and mine is lower. So yeah, just props to Marv for for being uh, an awesome resource and uh, for introducing me to Kern. That was a big deal. Uh, so sorry, let's return back to what I was saying. If, if you're in Cleveland and even if you have nothing to do uh, with ceramics, feel free to stop by. I'll be there. Come say hi. We can go get a beer after or something. So that's happening. And uh, the really cool, ex- exciting, uh, I, I had to get clearance to announce this before. From the CEO level, Simon uh, had to get called to, to get the, the okay. But Kern has bought a new facility in uh, Illinois. So we're already outside of Chicago, but you know we got a shop that was you know sized well for the amount of people we had at the time. Uh, but we've been really successful year over year. Uh, the American market has grown for us, you know, in no small part to the success that we've had talking to people on Instagram. So thank you all uh, for, for yeah, talking about us. So we're growing as a company. We brought on an applications engineer last year. We have more service techs than we've ever had before, et cetera. So we need a new building. So we uh, are upgrading to a 15,000 square foot facility that will have a showroom and room for th- the three micros in there with new offices and a training center so that we can do hide and hide and certified trading in house. So yeah, we're, we're trying to expand, you know, not just making a great machine, but also providing, you know, all the services that you need in order to be successful within training is I think sort of the, one of the, the keystones to having a successful machine install is really knowing what you're doing. So yeah, we're excited about that. We we took ownership of it just last month or so, and we've got a lot of construction to do. So it probably won't be something that anyone will be able to walk into and see this year. But I know for a fact that we'll be sharing some uh, some photos of it up on Instagram. So that's epic! Congrats to yeah. everyone at Kern. That's that's a big fifteen thousand square feet is not a, a small building either. So congrats yeah. to all you guys. Thank you. Yeah, it's it's a. Uh, it's pretty cool. I came. I'm excited to be with Kern in this this like big time of growth. Yeah, it's a good time to to be here for sure. That's really cool. Yeah, I look forward to seeing pictures and and what it becomes for sure. Yeah, and just like a small side note, something I forgot to mention in sort of like my responsibilities with Kern is I am a contributor on the social media. 
So like yesterday, I posted a picture of the the little cube inside a cube kind of thing. If anyone has suggestions of something they want to see, I know, you know, some people are like, show us more of how the machines are made or show us more about Heidenhain or whatever. We're pretty receptive to that. So if there's something you want to learn from our Instagram, then yeah, please shoot me a DM and uh, I'll see if there's something we can do to to help. That'd be great. Yeah. It might be cool to do like a a day in the life of a Kern employee and like just like, oh, yeah, here's what I'm doing today. You know, obviously, if there's anything that you can't share, can't do that. But like, it'd be cool to be like, hey, this is my this is my responsibility. Like I'm installing the control today or I'm installing the, you know, the axes or tramming them in or, you know, however it goes. But that might be a cool thing to do. Yeah, that's a good point. Because, yeah, there's, there's, I mean, something that I found really fascinating was uh, uh, on the micro HD, which has the hydrostatic guideways, there's a section where it is just someone's job to lap the axes straight within two microns. Uh, and I'm like, I don't know anything about hand lapping axes. <laughs> so for me, that's something that I know I, I, I could easily go to the factory and just watch those guys work and, and nerd out about that for a while. So, yeah, that's something we can definitely do more of. Yeah, that'd be great. Well, that brings me to the last question I ask every guest, which is, what did you research this week? So uh, besides Miata modifications, which I already sort of dived into a little bit, uh, which is just at this point, I'm sort of keeping an eye on, you know, used sway bars because I'm I don't want to spend more than 100 bucks to to modify that, at least at this time. I'm surprised it doesn't Uh, have them from the factory. No, it's got them. They're just too small. Oh, that's really interesting. Yeah. Yep. And it so, was funny because on my MR2, it's the exact opposite. I had to remove my front sway bar because the body is so stiff. It actually creates unwanted really? stiffness. Yeah. I left the, I think I left the rear one on. I took one of them off. I can't remember which one, but it was night and day difference. Interesting. That car has, what, four firewalls because it's mid-engine. Oh, so yeah. So there's the front to the, the, the passenger compartment, passenger compartment yep. to the engine, and then engine to the trunk. So that thing is like already so stupid stiff that adding another sway bar, it was just like too Makes much. It worse. Yeah. <laughs> That's funny. Yeah. On in in my case, the car is, I don't know, fairly stiff, but it is convertible. So, you know, in that way it makes it kind of flexy a little bit. Not terrible, but the stock springs are pretty I mean, most people hate them, absolutely hate them because they're just not stiff enough. But I cannot change them in this class. So the the next best thing you can do is the the class allows you to change one sway bar, front or rear. So front is probably what I'll I'll go for. You know, I already got a, a shorter sidewall tire that helped. But yeah, it's still very. A lot of uh, a lot of people call this generation of Miata the Mi Yacht, like a boat. <laughs> Mi Yacht, because it's like the biggest one. But it ha- happens to be the one that I fit in the best because I'm six foot three or six foot four roughly. So I don't mind the yacht, but yeah, it does mean that it's a little bit more heavy and a little bit more yeah, boat like in, right. in the turns, but that's easily modified. It's just, yeah, taking the time and money to do it. Right. So, but baby steps, driver mod first. The other thing that I was sort of researching this week and super excited about is I'm a bit of a, a SpaceX slash space. I don't know, you know, space exploration in general nerd it really kicked off when uh the falcon heavy launched the test launch back in 2018 uh totally captured you know sort of my my imagination and also my son like we're both really into this stuff so i was super excited to hear that they got the faa approval to launch from their texas location so you know it's been 
it's been delayed three or four times now. And finally, you know, we're going to see a complete stack launch uh, from Texas. So I just, I just love that stuff. I get, I get kind of mushy about it because it's like, you know, this is going to be my deep, uh, uh, what am I trying to say? It's going to be my, my deep thought section of the podcast. If you ever like stop and wonder like, why do we do all this? Like we're, we're all in manufacturing and we're all building things, but it's like, sometimes you don't even know what they're for. You know, a lot of the times you can't know what they're for. The customer won't tell you. So it's like, you're, you get kind of disconnected from the things you make. I just, I find it super inspiring to think about a company like SpaceX, where it's uh, completely apparent what they're doing and everyone knows what they're building and what they're working towards and what the goal is, you know, whether you buy into Elon Musk, you know, I, I kind of view it 50, 50 is kind of crazy, crazy billionaire, but I think it's pretty inspiring for generations like my son, his generation to see what SpaceX is doing and, you know, yeah, just, just push forward even at the expense of creating starships, you know, multiple starships and then scrapping them before they even launch just for the sake of iteration and improving. So yeah, I just, I get excited about things like that where there's a very clear reason why, you know, you're, you're manufacturing something and developing something. And yeah, I just find it super inspiring. So I'm excited about that. I'll be watching, yeah, intently <laughs> for, for that test launch. Yeah, I think I am right there with you. Like, I'm a big space nerd. Like, the, the the video of the two rockets landing at the same time, what was that, yeah. a couple years ago, was, like, yep. one of the coolest things I've seen as an adult. I was like, that is so yep. amazing. Yep. And I've been watching all of this stuff as well and, you know, all the other satellite companies and rocket companies that are coming up at the same time. And it's kind of cool to be in a modern-day space race. Like, you exactly. know, I was obviously not born when the last space race happened. So it's, yep. it's really cool. And uh, I don't know if you've seen the show For All Mankind on Apple I've TV. I've heard about it. No, I haven't watched it yet, though. It's it's pretty good. And it, like, definitely gives you that fervor of, like, a space race again. Because, like, the whole, yep. the whole backstory or, like, the premise of it is, like, what if Russia beat us to the moon? Yeah, and like the space race never ended because it's just us trying to get back at the USSR, and like so, it's just it, it is very timely with what's currently going on, and it's it's really cool. Yeah, so it's yeah. even even now, like I go back to that that test launch video, which was uh, yeah February of 2018 of the Falcon Heavy, and uh, if I'm having a crappy day, I'll just go back and watch that, and it's just like. Just to hear everyone in the in the crowd of there in the like the launch complex, you know, cheering on that is just like, I don't know. There's something inspiring about working towards a goal like that. That just, yeah, it, it can like uh, make me feel better about humanity on days when uh, sometimes we suck. <laughs> yeah, yeah. Well, and I think to your point too, it's really cool to see companies in general that are not afraid to fail. You know, I love that SpaceX posted that uh, video of like a year or so ago of all of the failed attempts to land and you know rockets exploding and stuff yep. and like you know nasa did not work like that like it was everything was stuck in bureaucracy for years before we even attempted anything and spacex right. was like let's just chuck some stuff into space and see where this all goes exactly even like blue origin i mean they're they're an independent company but they're doing it kind of the old-fashioned way and you, you've seen you know the uh, I forget if it's New Shepard or yeah, I think it's New Shepard is the the little hopper that is suborbital. It's neat, but like 
you know, and now they're sending space tourists up, but that doesn't really accomplish anything. And I think that's, you know, worth some criticism right there is just like, if the goal is just to launch rich people up into space and come back down, then that's arguably pretty lame. But what SpaceX is doing is really pioneering and, uh, and they're just doing it so quickly. It's it's just super rad. I, I love that stuff. Yeah. It seems like there's a lot of companies. I know there was some company out of Colorado or something that tests in Alaska and shoots stuff up, and then could be Astra. Maybe there's there's a whole bunch. I mean, this is you know when I when I'm researching uh, what I'm what I research every week is watching Scott Manley on YouTube, who basically does like a every week he'll say you know what happened this week. China launched some rockets. You know, SpaceX launched launched some rockets. This was announced, etc. So. That's how I keep up to date with, with that kind of stuff. But yeah, it's it's a good time to to be involved in in uh, not just manufacturing, but watching this develop in front of our eyes is super cool. Yeah, it is. And then there's that company, I can't remember what it's called, but it's the one that is using the giant slingshot in vacuum more oh, or less. Yeah, I forget what they're called, but I know what you're you're talking about. Yeah, what are they called? I'm sure if I just Google space slingshot, space it'll, slingshot. it'll come up because, uh, of course, the first post was giant sp- space slingshot. <laughs> it's called spin launch. That's what it is. Spin launch. Yeah. Yeah. That one's another I, I, cool one. I like the concept, but I think uh, I forget what the statistic is. But like once it leaves the the slingshot, it's already at like 100 G's of force. <laughs> yeah. Oh, so yeah. it's like. What can you launch with that? Like small CubeSats, that's about it. Because like nothing else would tolerate that amount of force being put onto it. So um, it's cool though. It's like we gotta, we we have to, it's another instance where like, well, we might as well try because we don't know what we, we don't know until we actually do it. So yeah, um, there's a lot of companies doing weird stuff like that. We've got one locally called uh, Worldview that's doing giant balloons to bring stuff to space. And like actually they're... (laughs) I think they're partially funded by that whole rich people want to go to space thing too, because one of their projects is like a giant thing that'll bring people up for space tourism. But (laughs) part of their thing, I think, is also bringing up satellites and stuff in a very slow, controlled method because it's just, you know, slow balloons. (laughs) Yep. Cost effective though. Yeah. Yeah. So, yeah. So that's, that's sort of what I, what I try to research when I'm uh, not doing everything else. Yeah, definitely. Well, Dan, thank you so much for taking the time. It's been great to kind of yeah. get to, you know, put a face to the name. I know we met at, at AU, but like I, that's been years now and it's kind of good to catch up and yeah. hear your whole story and how you got to where you are. Yeah, it's been my pleasure. And hey, before, before I sign off, how are things? I, I know you're both full time now, you and Brad. Yes, we are for like a week now and it has been amazing. Oh my awesome. goodness. Like I, I think we were both a little nervous about it at first. Uh, me, just because I've been like alone now for what eight months, yep. and <laughs> Brad, because it's kind of jumping off into something new. But man, even just in the past week, like uh, our local BMW motorcycle dealership, I've got a good relationship with them because I bought a bike from them, and they called me yesterday and they had a tool that wasn't fitting a bike, and they're like, "Hey, can you come down and check it out and modify it?" and we're so slammed right now that like there's no way I could have done it. And then I was like, oh, well, Brad can just do it. And so like I texted him. I was yeah. like, hey, I got some lathe work for you when you come in. And so he did that. And then like there's been another part that I've been pushing off for a customer locally that's really understanding. Like he has me make batches of this one part whenever he has we have time. 
and I just haven't had time. And I was like, oh, hey, Brad, can you figure out how to fit that in the TC? Like, we never run it in there, but just can you figure it out? And he's like, yeah, sure. And like, he got those running yesterday and has already almost finished the entire lot that I needed to run. And I'm like, this is, this is epic. This is really nice. That's so awesome. We, we yeah. might need to replace the TC before the end of the year with uh, maybe another Speedio or something. Or I, I really don't know where we're going to go next. We're going to kind of see where IMTS takes us and, you know, all yeah. of that. But, it'd be really nice to have another speedio and add that to the fleet and have him be able to run more complex parts and stuff that needs 3d machining and all that. Yeah. That's awesome. Uh, well, Hey, congr- congrats. It's, it's thanks. It's I've been, I also want to just like add one other thing uh, too, before I forget is uh, I really appreciate this podcast for, for one, I think I mentioned to you, it's very timely <laughs> and this is, I'm not trying to throw shade because Josh Hacko is, is my man, but I, <laughs> I, I so wish I could hear more episodes w- with like regularity of uh, the precision microcast. Yeah. But Josh, like, Adam, we yeah. all want more guys, but I understand there's a lot of research and, and, and time that goes into to that podcast where this is a different format. What I will say is there, there's, I, I'm privy to some episode that's coming up, one or two of them that are going to be really good. So I'm excited for that. But what what I can say is, you know, as someone who's in manufacturing but never worked in a shop, or you know, you know, I've run obviously quite a few CNC machines, but mostly just you know from from one brand or the other, but doesn't have that that practical experience. I love this podcast because it lets me hear people's actual experiences with machines and what's going on in their businesses. And I think it's something that more people in sort of a sales role could benefit from is actually, you know, being, uh, putting yourself in the shoes of a small business owner and understanding what the day-to-day struggles are like. And, you know, it's like, how do you, you can't sell to people if you don't understand what they're experiencing essentially. So yeah, I just, I, I, I feel pretty fortunate that that I get to listen to this and sort of get a, a sneak behind the curtain kind of of what every, everyone's up to and what their struggles are and how they overcome it. And so, yeah, thank you. It's it's awesome to be here, but it's even better to listen. I appreciate that. Yeah, I, I, I do think that, that I've talked to salesmen before that don't seem to understand the difference between when they're selling to a big company and versus a small business. It's like, I need this machine to work because this is my lifeblood. Like right. it's like this big company might have might be big enough that they can just like ah, I don't care you know it'll work when it works kind of thing but like yeah this is like my machines are the way I make my money so yep. yeah exactly I, I, I I'm glad that that comes across and that it is helpful for you yeah and I mean that's that's something with current too is like we of course have huge customers right you know big big names whatever but then we also have like john grimsmo level people and sometimes smaller that have our equipment and i mean it's yeah it's they they go through similar struggles as to what i hear of 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 people who are on your podcast so it's just good to to keep a pulse of yeah what's going on in in, uh in real machine shops not just huge conglomerate companies (laughs) (laughs) well i appreciate that definitely yeah and real quick before we close, new Patreon thank yous to Doyen and Johnny. Thanks for joining the Patreon to help support episodes like this. And thanks again, Dan. I really appreciate you coming on and taking the time. Absolutely. Thank you, Dylan. And thanks, everyone, for listening. I'll be back next week.